morning, Glory America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. Greetings to the global audience listening online at HughHewitt.com. I am Hugh Hewitt on this Friday, February 18th, 2019. It is my first Hillsdale Dialogue of the New Year with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale, are found at hillsdale.edu, including a magnificent new online course about World War II, hosted by Dr. Arn and Victor Davis Hanson, based on Victor Davis Hanson's brand new book, The Second World Wars, which is an incredible read. I took it with me along uh, the trip. I accompanied Ambassador Bolton to Israel and Turkey and couldn't get my nose out of it. Dr. Arn and I have had these conversations since 2013. They are all collected for binge listening at hughforhillsdale.com. Dr. Arn, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. I want to begin, if you don't mind, with Article 2 of the Constitution. We are in the Constitution business here, as is Hillsdale. And a lot of issues about Article 2 are front and center this week and every week. And the key paragraphs I'll read and then ask you to summarize what they mean. Article 2, Section 1. The executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States. He shall hold his office during the term of four years and together with the vice president chosen for the same term be elected. And then it talks about how he gets elected, what he gets to do. And then it comes down to say no person except a natural born citizen or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this Constitution, that's the Hamilton Clause, shall be eligible to the office of the president. Neither shall any person be eligible to that office who shall not have attained the age of 35 years and been 14 years a resident within the United States, another Hamilton Clause. And it goes on to talk about the State of the Union, and that's it. So it does say he can't receive an emolument from any government, um, etc. What's that mean, Larry Arn, about the powers of the president? Well, they, uh, uh, the distinct uh, possession of the three kinds of government powers in separate hands is the heart of the Constitution. Well, I guess the heart is that it represents that everybody represents the people. But after that, this keeping the branches separate is crucial. And so the president is the executive. And if you think about it for a minute, the executive is a different kind of power than the legislative. The legislative power is not continuous with events because they pass a law and then time goes on, right? And they may have to pass another one, but there's a bunch of laws. And so they're in existence. And so, you know, my own view is it would be what a great relief if the Congress didn't meet very often. <laughs> but, uh, but the business of the country has to go on all the time. And when the Congress is in session, by the way, it's not necessarily keeping up with the business of the country. It's got things it's working on, right? So now, then the laws, however, have to be continuously enforced. And so that means that the president has a different kind of job, a job connected to events, a job uh, dwelling on the things that are happening now that concern the law, and the, and the legislature is deliberating about other stuff. So, so there you go. So the president has got to be separate, and he's got to have, and he gets in each of the branches, by the way, the, uh, the, in Article 1, the legislature, Article the executive, Article 3, the judiciary, each of the branches, the power is vested somewhere and somewhere discreet. And in Section 2, that power is articulated not in full, but at least in great part when it says, 
The president shall be commander in chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the militia of several states when called into the actual service of the United States. He may require the opinion in writing of the principal officer in each of the executive departments upon any subject relating to the duties of their respective officers. And he shall have the power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. He shall have the power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties provided two-thirds of the senators present concur, and he shall nominate and by by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and councils, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for and which shall be established by law. But the Congress may, by law, vest the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper in the president alone, in the courts of law, or in the heads of department, the president shall have the power to fill up vacancies that may happen during the recess of the Senate by granting commissions, which shall expire at the end of their next session. So that talks a little bit more in detail about the unitary executive, Dr. Arn. What are they trying to infuse that they could have just left silent had they just said he's the chief executive? Well, uh, also the phrase, take care that the laws be faithfully executed. You see, that means all the laws. That's sweeping. That's a very important thing. And, and because it all belongs to him, uh, you know, we have this Mueller thing going on right now. And that special prosecutors, are they've gone on in America for a long time. And oddly enough, although there's a lot of experience with them, their constitutional standing is still ambiguous. And in the great case Morrison v. Olson, badly decided, where uh, Justice the late Antonin Scalia wrote one of his very greatest things, the dissent, he makes the point, and it's very powerful. He says, uh, in the old special prosecutor law, uh, the uh, attorney general, an agent of the president, could only dismiss the special prosecutor for good cause, which is a limit, then, on the power of the president to manage the inferior officers. And Scalia makes the point, that should just have decided the matter. That's all. Once they admit that there's any qualification on the possession of the executive power by the president, then the, the, the Constitution itself is compromised. Because remember, the people need this division of powers so that the government does not conspire together against their rights. Now, what, what we have in front of us, though, is the essential question. I talked to Jack Goldsmith, a very substantial scholar, a professor of law at Harvard Law, former assistant attorney general in the Office of Legal Counsel, founder of Lawfare Blog. He's very concerned about what we have learned about the FBI. Now, I'm going to come back and talk to you about the Michael Cohen story in BuzzFeed today. But what we learned about the FBI this week is that Bruce Orr, a former deputy associate attorney general, met with the already dismissed Christopher Steele on July 30th, 2016, then with Andrew McCabe, the deputy director of the FBI, and Lisa Page, the lawyer who was subsequently scandalously dismissed because of text with Peter Strzok on the 31st, and then with lawyers at the Department of Justice in August, and then they went for a FISA warrant, and then they investigated the President of the United States on their own motion. And Jack Goldsmith, who is a friend of Comey, is deeply disturbed by this because it suggests the police agency, the secret police agency in this case, is acting on their own against the elected president of the United States, Dr. Arndt. Does it alarm you as well as it alarmed uh, Professor Goldsmith? Well, Molly Hemingway also wrote a really great article about this last week. He said another good one yesterday. 
And uh, and she she quotes uh, a New York Times article appearing on a Friday night, and a CNN interview appearing the same day, where they uh, interview sources in the FBI who told them that they had uh, that they didn't have evidence that the president had colluded with the Russians, but that they decided to investigate him to quote rein him in, and and without evidence. And now that, you see, in other words, those are people carrying guns. And the question is, to whom are they accountable? Because the president is accountable to us. If we don't like him, we can get rid of him. And his powers are offset by the legislative powers of the Congress. So an administrative agency, and you know, the senior people in the FBI, they, they don't do as much as they did before because it's been called to their attention what it means. They speak of their independence. And the question is, independence from what? You know, because independence from the president means independence from us. And that means, that's, you know, it's, it's not, but it's a step in the direction of a military junta. That, and let's, let's pause there. You are a student, of course, of Churchill, part of the official biography of Churchill. He warned that socialism would inevitably re- require a Gestapo, and that got him in deep trouble in the 1945 election. But what he was saying is that Big governments inevitably police their authority, and they are jealous of it. And I have raised with Goldsmith and others, I don't. I wonder if it's inevitable that a central police agency is going to go full Hoover eventually. Well, we have to stop it, right? There's a reaction against it, and uh, uh, it. But on this track, it's where they go. Sure. And there, and and you know, my own view. I don't know. I know one of the people, but I don't know many of them. But uh, on my view, I would guess that they're very fine people, and they're high-minded people. I mean, Strzok and and uh, McCabe, they seem partisan, right? Their texts have come to light, and they're, you know, pe- people with investigatory powers going after people because they, you know, for political reasons. That's pretty plain in Strzok's emails to the lady. Um, But, you know, I think Comey is probably a great guy. I don't know. I don't like him. But uh, they're just wrong-headed, and they're going down a path that leads somewhere difficult. We will talk about that path, and we will talk about what do you do? How do you police the police when they feel they have the right to investigate the elected representative? Not Congress. Congress can check the president. We'll talk about that with Dr. Larry Arn. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu, including this great new course on the Second World War. All of our Hillsdale dialogues in the last radio hour of each week are found at hugh4hillsdale.com, so you can binge listen. We're talking about Article 2, the powers of the executive, the president, and what the FBI ought to be doing and is doing within it. Dr. Arn, do they have movie theaters, you know, the moving pictures in Hillsdale? Yeah, and we even have teenagers together outside them. Okay, so you've got movies. Now, I'm hoping... There are probably only one or two screens. I'm hoping the movie Cold War comes, which was a late 2018 release about star-crossed lovers in post-war Poland who also have to visit East Berlin and Yugoslavia. And what it communicates is that the secret police are everywhere and always listening and that everyone becomes an informer and the dangers of the secret police. And that I think a lot of people have forgotten since the wall fell 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh 
Well, if you're watching movies, you should also watch The Lives of Others, which is explicitly about that in East Germany. Oh, that's the Stasi. They were the worst. That's really important. That's a beautiful movie, and it's a touching movie and a thriller, and it's about the the plot, roughly, is this this super effective Stasi officer listens to this couple, and uh, they're actors, and the couple falls into trouble because one of the higher-ups wants to sleep with the woman who's a lovely woman. And listening to them, he sees the beauty of their relationship, and he helps them escape. It's just lovely. It is and a lovely thing, but the, 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 the threat it describes, the same threat as in Cold War, which I really, it's 88 minutes long, it's black and white, it's magnificent, is that a secret police has no boundary, and... The Bureau is not supposed to be a secret police. It is supposed to be bounded by the attorney general, who is in turn bounded by the president. And the president is bound, as you said, by us and by Congress, correct? That's right. Well, by Congress in in, in the ways that with the powers that Congress has. First of all, he must take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And there can't be laws without Congress and the president. And then second, they can inquire into the business of the executive branch, and they have oversight, and that's, you know, we're about to see, that's a very brutal power. And, uh, and you know, Trump's a fighter. He's fighting back with them. It's going to be really interesting in politics for a while. So, yeah, they've got, they've got that. And then, remember, the judges also check the president because the, the president, when he enforces a law, he imposes penalties on people sometimes, but he never does it on his own. All he can do is arrest them, and then you've got to take them to a judge. And he can't fire the judge, see? So it's, it, it, each one of these branches has to be sovereign in its domain, or authoritative is not sovereign, authoritative is a better word, in its domain, so that they can offset each other. Yeah, and, and in fact, when we come back from break, we're going to talk about the BuzzFeed story of the day and what it means for Donald Trump. But if the Congress wants to go after him, there's a way to lay out going after him. And they may go after the president, but that's not the bureau going after him. And I, and I just can't stress enough to people why this is so disturbing, because we did not set it up to have a private agency or a, a, an independent agency be a watchdog on the president. It undermines everything. It does, and uh, that you know that's just a direct. Um, it's a, a kind of rebellion against the Constitution, and I and I think it's uh, oddly enough. If you read these conversations with that, that get published with these people, I think it's naive. I think that they've just grown up in a world where these agencies have a kind of sovereignty of their own, and their independence and dignity have to be uh, defended including against an elected official they don't like. You see, there you're, you're indulging mercy. You're being kind, which maybe is inherent in having to be a college president dealing with young people. But you're attributing to them a lack of malice, that they didn't know any better, that they don't have a constitutional spine built into them when they take the oath of office. They don't know what it means. I think that's awfully generous, Dr. Arne. Well, I, I don't. As I say, I accepted Strzok and McCabe. You know, we've read some of their stuff, private stuff, and... They look like partisans to me, but uh, I bet a lot of them are not like that. When we come back, I do believe that this within the Bureau is limited to a dozen people or less. 
But they had access to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, and that is a dangerous thing. Stay tuned, America. Welcome back, America. We gather in urgent times here in the ReliefFactor.com studio inside Los Angeles. I'm on the West Coast. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, is my guest. He's in Naples, Florida, where he mesmerized an audience of hundreds last night. It's a zombie-inducing state that you, you kind of shake it off for three or four hours later like Chinese food and say, what happened to me? Dr. Arn, um, what did you talk about last night, by the way, to the people in, in Naples? Yeah, I was just at lunch, and I talked about... Uh I, I talked about, I, I used something that happened in the Bush administration as a specific example of the, the second, the George W. Bush administration, as a specific example of the way we're changing the way we live. And the thing was the intrusion of the federal, of the Department of Education into higher education, as it had already done in K-12 through education. And I explained how they did that and why they said they did that. And then I said that they are, in fact, exactly in the position of Thrasymachus in the Plato's Republic. We've become a nation of sophists who seek power and not truth. How very, How did they react to that? Because you don't hear about Thrasymachus. I can't even say his name. I've, I've had that trouble since Harvey Mansfield tried to get me to say that name in 1975. Thrasymachus. How do, how do they respond to that? Well, it was, yeah, it went pretty well. It, uh, you know, it's... And it is true, if you just read the quotes, you know, the purpose of higher ed is so that we can be a strong nation and compete with China. And, you know, I, I told them at the time, because I was around back in 2005, uh, I told them at the time, I said, you know, I think maybe China has become formidable because they've become more like us. And so your idea is to become more like them. And uh, they didn't understand that. They were actually even kind of hostile to me. But uh, the, ma- the main thing is, if you forget that, you know, for example, Winston Churchill said uh, 40 beautiful things about education, 40 things total about education, or 50. And, all but, and one of them is inane. It's about community colleges or the British equivalent. And the rest of them are all, they all, every one of them, make the point that education should be about the permanent things so we can direct our lives well and be free. And he just had that in his bones. And another person who never got that wrong was Ronald Reagan, two guys not distinguished for their educations. And just, you know, Republicans and Democrats, goodness sake, both. And it's almost purely bipartisan, although the Republicans are a bit better. They 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 think that that excuse me education is a grand engineering project. To and you know you can't do that. You shouldn't want to do that to the young. And if you try to direct what they learn in that way, because see the learning is in them. Yeah, I have a question for you. Yeah. I, I know I, I want to make sure people understand you're not saying that that um, education credentials are bad. It's just that they're not a replacement for a real education. Three individuals with the credentials, Tom Cotton, Mike Pompeo and John Bolton, uh, two Harvard lawyers and one Yale lawyer, the latter Bolton, are all known to you and me pretty well. And they all use their educational opportunities to great advantage to understand how the world works. They also all came from modest circumstances. Do you think there's a correlation there? Yeah, there might be. It, uh, 
it, uh, you know, they're strivers, right? Tom, I know. Tom, Senator Cotton, I know well. And he's a striver, right? He wants to get things right. And just, you know, I'm, I'm making a simple distinction. In the Declaration of Independence, just think how that's written, right? It was an impossible thing they were about to undertake. It, there's no belief, reason to believe they could do it. But they started out by placing themselves, by arguing that they were in the right, according to a standard above both them and the king. And that is, in, in higher education especially, but in all education, you should learn to think like that. Um, there is a, uh, a, a prevalent opinion right now. Jake Sherman was on the show earlier today who believes we are in a crisis. I've been reading about Lincoln in 1864. That was a crisis. You know, that, that was when we were about to lose the war, and Grant had blown up the Petersburg crater, and uh, Washington was actually being threatened by... Uh, uh, Jubal Yearly coming out of the Shenandoah Valley. That was a real crisis. Do you think we're in a crisis, Larry Arn? Leo Strauss said in The City and the Man, we're not in a crisis unless we lose sight of our first principles. I'm paraphrasing. Do you think we're in a crisis? Well, uh, Strauss says in the beginning of Natural Right in History that uh, we have defeated the historicist powers in Europe, but it wouldn't be the first time that a defeated power uh, imposed upon the victors the yoke of its own thought. Huh. And so uh, I think that's what's happening, and I, and I don't know where we are, but I, crisis just means turning point, right? And we're at a point now where if we don't interrupt this, it's going to become, uh, it's going to move beyond the power of the people by regular means to disrupt it and now, change it. Now, you and, are married to an Englishwoman. And, uh, and the wonderful Penny, of course, in America now, but, but she knows Great Britain, and you know it, and you've spent so much time there, you know in, their bone, in your bones the parliamentary system. They're in a crisis there. They're in a turning point because they can't, they, the people voted to leave the European Union, and they can't figure out how to do it, but I am taking some solace, and it appears that the prime minister, incompetent in so many ways, is at least resolute that she will not reverse the vote of the people. Uh, yeah. What do you think about that? Do you, is is yeah. she for turning? Has she got round heels, or is it is she going to stick? Well, she, uh, you're right. She hasn't been very good. And, you know, if she does that, she could destroy her party for a long time. Because, you know, what, what else is there, right? In, in the end, there was a vote, and, and one side won, and... Her side, her her voters voted for it more heavily than the other guys, not not unanimously. And uh, I'm told by a really great guy, Rupert Dar- Darwall from from England, who writes on this stuff. And I check with him once in a while, and he says most of the Tory MPs are Remainers, but most of them understand that this would be just a very big step to. Uh, and you know, she took the job. She was a Remainer. She was she was. She didn't vote for Brexit, uh, Brexit or support it, but she took the job with the, with the understanding that she was going to get this thing done, and she's pr- been trying to get it done in a soft way, and the Europeans won't let her, and the reason they won't is that there are other people who might want to leave, and Britain is a big fish, and so they want to set an example. They want to punish the British, and she, she mustn't bow to that. And that means there may have to be a hard Brexit. And that means this, you know, in what, a month or six weeks or whatever it is, to eight weeks maybe, then then they may just have to, there's a day where they fall under the laws that apply to all of the 
nations that are not in the European Union. The WTO rules, and it will be disruptive, but it would honor the people's vote. And yeah. I, I worry that if they go to a, she said a red line is no customs union, and many members of her party want a custom union, and she said no revote, and many members of the Labor Party and her party want a revote. She's got to stand strong on this, and it's got nothing to do, I understand it will be difficult, but this is a fundamental thing you always are fond of saying, Larry Arn. fundamental things are afoot. This is the most fundamental thing in Great Britain in my memory. Yeah. You know, and, and just think about, you know, expand the issue, be, uh, abstract from the details of it a little bit. And what do you see? You see this thing that was founded as a free trade organization, partly on the impetus of Winston Churchill, always with the opinion that Britain should not join it, it should support it. But it's fallen into the clutch of this vast administrative state that has grown around the European Union. And it's now a regulatory and lawmaking body in ways that Churchill uh, resisted, because, you know, it was imagined by some in the beginning, and Churchill is on the record, read Andrew Roberts' book, has got a really beautiful quote about it, on the record that this is not a government. And the reason it isn't the government is it doesn't have the means to gather uh, public opinion and the support of the governed behind it. And one of the reasons for that is the people in those different countries can't talk to each other. Right. They'd speak different languages. Yep. It's like, in you know, I was reading this morning to get ready for this, the way the president gets elected in the Electoral College. And the way they wanted that to happen was prominent people of good repute in each state would be chosen within that state so that people could know each other. And then they would all meet in the state capitol separately, but on the same day and choose the president. And that, that means that the people, all of them, would have a chance to be talking with the people who would select. Now, in the great national politics, one of the reasons the media behaves the way it does is that it has become the forum, the only forum which we can through, through which we can talk to each other. But we're not talking to each other. We're just hearing from them. And, and that's the way the European Union works, too, right? Just remember, there's supposed to be an ongoing, con- like this show, right? People listen to the show. They get together, you know. Hillsdale College events, there was a big one, and there were several in Florida this week, and they were all pretty big. You know, one of them was really big. And it's a bunch of people who get together, and they spend as much time talking to each other as they did here and me. And that's that's the point, right? An informed free people in control of the government. And, and the Brexit thing is about that. Can they disentangle themselves from this? And, and urgently so. The other thing, you just said, in informed people. I don't know if you have been following some of the tweets from some of the freshman members of the House. I am uh, n- the opposite of edified by the level of ignorance. You, you know, they want to get rid of the Senate. And my law students don't know, but I expect a member of the Congress to know the only thing you can't amend in the Constitution, the only thing, is that each state gets two senators. It's the one thing you're not allowed to touch, Larry Arn, and they apparently don't know that. Yeah, that's right. And they, uh, and, you know, well, and if they do, it doesn't matter to them. You see, because another thing is we, we lose our sense. We have so many laws now, right? And, we lose our sense of the law, the idea that there's 
And what, what does the rule of law require? It requires that everybody involved, and that means the citizens too, must be able to understand the law and carry it around with them in their minds. And that means that when the legislature passes a law, they can expect that the president will understand it as they have, and the people will understand it as they have, and the judges will understand it as they have, and then the law is predictable. And then a crime is then really a willful act because it's an act against a thing that is understood. When we come back, we're, we're going to talk about the rule of law, because Bill Barr, the attorney general designate, the once and future attorney general, was asked specifically about the rule of law and what it meant. And he said, it means that A, when subjected to the law, will be treated the same as B, who will be treated the same as C, who will be treated the same as D. It's a wonderful answer, and we'll expand on that when we return. Dr. Larry on my guest, the Hillsdale Dialogue, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. After this. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, reminding you always to visit townhallreview.com for a great collection of the best in talk radio each week, made available to you, in fact, every day. And often it includes the Hillsdale Dialogue, which we are completing for this week with Dr. Larry Arn. All things Hillsdale are available at hillsdale.edu, but sometimes we excerpt this and put it into the townhallreview.com, so you ought to go there and listen to it during the week. Dr. Arn, I, I said you earlier that uh, Jake Sherman said we're in a crisis, and he was talking about not the story about Michael Cohen being told by the president to lie to Congress. That's That will play itself out. We'll find out. He was talking about Article 1 and Article 2 being at loggerheads. And I, my view is Article 1 is going to Article 1 and Article 2 is going to Article 2 and that this isn't a crisis. This is actually the way it's supposed to work. And if the Nancy Pelosi wants to shut down the State of the Union and the president wants to shut down her airplane, that this is not a crisis. It's the Constitution, doggone it. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, yeah, those things are signs of health. Uh, the sign, actually, I mean, they're actually good, right? I mean... Yes! And, and uh, but... Because that's what—that's how it's set up. Now, what's the crisis is is the biggest single fact that's different about the American government from when it was more constitutional is that the Congress does not make the laws anymore. They are actually made in something that's now understood as the executive branch, but it isn't. Right? It's all these regulatory agencies, 150 in round numbers of them, and they are the. Uh, in their subject matters, they are the executive, the legislature, and the judiciary all rolled into one. And they are responsive to Congress when the Congress... I mean, this thing in the FBI, by the way, is a little bit indicative of this, right? Because, because they're responsive to Congress when the Congress enhances their strength, and they have massive strength. They're also one of the biggest factors in election because lots of money that goes into elections comes from a mixture of public employee unions and what we're pleased to refer to as the regulated community. That is to say, if you're regulated by the federal government, by one of these agencies, you you know, you know they're watching what you do in politics. So that that is a huge change, right? And it means that the president is not in control of the large, most of the executive branch. It's lawmaking and the Congress is not really in control of it either very much. Uh, and the judges, you know, made their peace with it, although maybe Mr. Gorsuch and Mr. Kavanaugh and others are going to interrupt that by getting rid of this doctrine that the courts will defer to these agencies on their facts and rulings. So anyway, the point is that we've all, the branches have, Charles Kessler wrote this years ago, 
have fought themselves into each other's clothes. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it's all mixed up, right? And the truth is, this little this squabble that's going on about the land, the State of the Union, and Nancy Pelosi going on a junket to wherever she's going in military airplanes, this squabble, that, that's the old politics, right? That's what they used to be like. Uh, and And by the way... <laughs> At a much lower level of antagonism, I mean, it's rhetorically quite funny, it, occasionally it's harsh, but no one is caning someone on the floor of the Senate, and John Brown isn't crossing over into Harper's Ferry to murder people, and the Missouri-Kansas, uh, uh, Lady Kansas isn't happening. I just think there's a tendency in the media to overstate what this is. It's very hard on the 800,000 federal employees who aren't getting checks. I don't mean to diminish that, but it is not a crisis. No. And uh, but, you know, it is, you know, you, you know, you, you just referred to the worst period. Right. Yes. In American history. Yes. And, uh, and another one like it here and there during the American Revolution. But, you know, Charles, both Charles Kessler and Victor Hansen have written that this is kind of like a cold civil war we're in now. And that that that's what it was like leading up to the civil war. And I you know, I pray that it will that we will get resolution on these things and that we will get accountable government and you know, we can go back to the chaos that we refer to as peace when it's not like this. <laughs> and and the, and while this is going on as you mentioned earlier in the show, there is rising in the East a power that is actually potentially far more significant as an adversary than Russia ever was, even though you can't get more significant than nuclear weapons and first strikes in the Cuban Missile Crisis. It is a fact that the People's Republic of China has ten, five times the people we do. Five times. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, that's a blessing and a curse and uh, for them. And... Uh, They've had, you know, that hasn't always been a good thing. And remember what they're trying to do, see? And this is a drama that's going to play out. They're trying to make stable a despotic and comprehensive regime. And they, you know, they, they have got where they've got because the Chinese people are remarkable people, right? And they've, and they've, they've, got, they've, got, they've got intelligence and loyalty and family, and that makes them formidable. And they and uh, and, you know, the communism basically took them apart. Right. Huge percentage of the population was killed. And uh, and so now they've liberalized. Right. But they're tightening back up again. And it won't be easy to maintain that. It will not. And we will see who breaks first or whether we restore our vitality to its full vigor first or if they get ahead. Dr. Larry Arn, always a pleasure. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues are collected at you for Hillsdale.com. 